Welcome to View from the Loch with Bill Donald and my very special guest, golf and sports journalist who has covered nine Olympics and 75 golf major championships. That's right, 75 golf major championships. Works for uh, RTE in Ireland, uh, but is also well known across the broadcasting world. Uh, you are very, very welcome, Greg Allen. Thanks, Bill. Lovely to be on your, your podcast. Well, listen, I've been trying to get you on, so I'm delighted that we've managed to do it. So for you, Greg, golf in your life, when did it start? Who was your influencers? Who, who did you inspire to be uh, as a youngster? Uh, and what golf course did you first learn to play golf on? Actually, I'm not really someone who's uh, embedded in the, the DNA of golf from when I was like a toddler or, or a young child. Um, I kind of came to it via pitch and putt, which is a big sport in Ireland. Yeah. Um, I, but as one of the main sports as I, you know, you play in your, or just before your teens and into your teens. And I didn't actually play a golf course until I was about 14. I played nine holes in a, a Lynx course and I was on holidays in a place called Rani and the hanging out over the, the west coast of Mayo um, over the Atlantic. And it was uh, quite an introduction. Sheep on the course, nine holes, 60 strokes later, 14-year-old. The, the driver was almost as tall as I was. I was very small and I was completely hooked. It was interesting so far as I'd known what pitch and putt was like. I The, the joy of pitch and putt is it cannot be uh, underestimated, especially for, for children because it's short. Uh, it doesn't last much more than an hour. And uh, you still have the thrill of putting a ball in the hole from, from 75 yards, maybe. And um, so that's where I came to it from. And then uh, when I went to college, I was very lucky. I sat down in college the first day in college in front of uh, somebody who be who's become a lifelong friend. His father played golf. He played golf. They took me out to the Island Golf Club in Donna Bate. What a battle. Oh, yes. And uh, I'll always remember my first real 18 holes of golf when I was uh, 18, 19 years of age. My, my drive off the first... I went off the toe of the club, scattered uh, a four ball of women on the 18th green, which was very close to the first tee. So, that was the best thing that I did that day. <laughs> Hope you bought them a drink in the clubhouse afterwards, Greg, or were you allowed to? Oh, I think they were coming after me. <laughs> uh, it's actually interesting you say the, the pitch and putt course because I have very fond memories playing with my father and some of his friends as well uh, over in St. Anne's. So you've got Lytham St. Anne's, of course, is host to one of our, our majors. Uh, and, um, you know, I, every year for five, six years, we played the pitch and putt course uh, at St. Anne's. Uh, and there was another one in Blackpool as well. Um, and, you know, you're absolutely right. I actually learned to play a bit of sort of links golf properly uh, from a pitch and putt course because, you know, I was a young kid uh, as well. My drives only went about halfway, um, embarrassingly, uh, to, to the green or whatever. And you had to play off these tight, tight lies. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just, you just brought me back when you mentioned pitch and putt courses. So yeah, I mean, I absolutely completely understand where you're coming from. Um, now, when we look at the world of golf, Greg, I mean, it just seems to be story after story um, sort of hurtling at us at a rate of knots, uh, which, you know, I'm not sure I've seen. Uh, I'm 26 years involved in, in golf management. I've seen anything like it. I mean, you know, you, you pick your choice of what you want to talk about. But I guess one of the latest um, additions to this sort of ever-growing number of stories that we're having to deal with is the RNA and USGA have announced uh, uh, their idea of a rollback on golf balls. What's your thoughts about that? Well, I think that probably they have to. Um, they have to roll back the ball to some degree because if the current trend for physicality in the sport, like they are so many more athletes now in the sport uh, so even if they left the golf ball where it is right now uh, 360 yard drives will probably become the norm for and not just the very players but for guys who go into the gym train hard and just play you know golf in a, in a studio a trackman studio all winter uh, which is mm -hmm. happening hugely in ireland because obviously it's it's more fun than going out and playing in rain and wind and 
minus two degrees. Uh, so a lot of those kids who are who are going into those trackman studios, they're, they're more interested in their their numbers as how far they're hitting the ball as distinct from hitting the ball in the hole. So this is now very much, uh, uh, you know, the culture of fitness and eating well and, and muscling up and, and being very, very uh, much more the athlete in, in golf. It, that's driving distance. Economy is driving distance. It's, unless you get your green staff to mow the, the fairways back towards the tee on every single hole, uh, the ball will keep going further because agronomy is better uh, than it has been. And clearly, if that's the case, all golf courses from this point on that are new builds that want to stage tournaments uh, at tour level would have to be 8,000 yards or certainly have the capacity for 8,000 yard tees. And so if that is going to be the trend, you know, maybe in another 40 years, it'll be 9,000 yards. So real estate is only so, so, so finite. And well, this is my view anyway. I, I do believe that the rollback of the ball, I, I, I think the current and the rolling back the ball won't really be noticeable that much for average players. Um, and it'll just take, you know, this 360 yard drives back to 320 yards, which is still ginormously long distances. Hmm. So um, I, I do think that there is a place for the rollback. I don't like the idea of bifurcation. I think the idea that we use the same implements that the pros use is something which is a, a charming part of the sport. We can all say after we shoot our, our round of the year, whatever it might be, it might just say you're a six handicapper and you shoot around a 74 in your local golf course. You can identify with a tour player because a tour player on a bad day could have a 74 on, on a course that's a bit longer, but you still have an identity with that sort of achievement and performance. And, and I, I don't think the idea of bifurcation is the way that's going to be satisfying for a lot of players, especially those who are in the territory of being a scratch player or a four handicap or, or a six handicap who might have that one day in the year where they even maybe even break par. But if they do it with equipment that's different to the pros, they can't really feel that that's been something that they can accurately compare. I know that sounds like a very niche point, but I think it's still a point that you'd be thought about. But in general, yeah, I, I'm in favor of the rollback. I'm not in favor of bifurcation. I just think we should all take the same medicine. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I have to agree with you. Uh, you know, all part of the charm, isn't it, of, uh, uh, you know, of golf and, and what golf's all about. To, you know, uh, the handicap system, of course, revered and, and uh, allows you to play against many people at different levels. So, yeah, it does seem as if uh, the bifurcation tend to agree with you, um, maybe a step too far. I mean, just for stats-wise, John Daly, 1999, 305.6 yards, uh, and people were, you know, jumping up and down. Uh, you, you go on for another 22 years, and it's Rory at 326.6 is the average. So effectively, they're saying it's a yard a year in length. Um, but I think listening to you, it just struck me as the generation that we're in, you know, with that sort of athleticism and, you know, all the well, well-being and, and vitamins and, and whatever everybody's sort of working towards, you know, and, and that sort of, um, I wouldn't like to say computer game, but it does strike me the track man, that sort of computer game generation as well. It all seems to sort of uh, uh, Shambo-esque. Uh, in people's heads that it's blast them and uh, you know and then move on from there so yeah I, I think uh, it, it's going to be a biggie um, I'm not sure what are, what are the players have you any indication of what the players are thinking about it? Well I think actually it's quite interesting to hear Rory uh, basically mm. in favour of it uh, of, of a rollback mm. um, clearly you know the DeChambos of this world are not in favour of it because they believe that pummeling the ball as far as you can is a skill and it is, you know, there's, there's no question about, you know, timing a driver perfectly uh, and getting the maximum carry, maximum head speed, ball speed. All of those things are, are skills as well as physical achievements. But they are, to some degree, reducing what exists of, as golf courses right now. The you know, 475-yard par four being the longest par four mm. in the course, which was you know, the old traditional number. That's now a 360-yard drive slightly downwind. And what wedge will I pick for the, my second shot to the green? Um, even if it's, you know, in neutral conditions, you're talking about driver 9-9, driver wedge. Uh, par fives, 
we know that the 13th and Augusta, what they've had to do there, you know, the amount of money that Augusta National had to pay for an extra 35 yards of, of tee box um, has, has been designed to make a fairly iconic hole into one is restored back to what it was designed by Alistair McKenzie to be, which is reach to, but with a long iron with a certain amount of risk and not, you know, drive it over the trees and have a nine iron in your hands as Bubba Watson did when he won in 2014, I think it was. So, uh, and it's been done consistently. So, you know, when you're always trying to make golf courses suit the equipment, maybe it's time for the equipment to be rolled back so that the golf courses, which are, finite in size uh if you take somewhere like marion which hosted the 2013 us open mm-hmm. um it was a very small piece of land it's about 110 acres or something like that they hosted the us open on it just about uh, they had so little land in and around the golf course that a lot of the infrastructure was in the back gardens of houses which were across the road from from Marion and which had to become part of the infrastructure of the US Open. And that was so that they could just host the US Open at what is a brilliant old school, beautiful course. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, and Marion will be staging, I think the US Open in 2030, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, and I think, and I actually think that the USGA had Marion in mind when they, they were, were, were thinking about this rollback because it'd be utterly superfluous to the requirements of a U.S. Open staging in 10, 15 years' time if equipment isn't checked right now and maybe even rolled back a bit. And I think that's... I'm not saying it was the inspiration, but I think it might have been one of the courses that would have been in their mind, that they would have lost Marion to a championship. Mm-hmm. Like, you mentioned Rory um, at the start of uh, your sort of chat there um and i know you've a long association with rory greg and uh, you know anything that anybody can find out about rory maybe even in the early days which is what we're going to talk about uh, is always fascinating he's box office um you know he is the man really um and uh, you go as i said way back so can you tell us a bit about the early days with yourself and rory I'll always remember the first time I, I saw Rory on a golf course, strike a golf ball. There was quite a lot of talk about him at this stage. It was the 2005 Irish Amateur Open at Carton House. Um, and he was golf. I'd say he was about five foot five, five foot six, maybe mm-hmm. nine half stone. Uh, still, he was, he, he, it was about two days after his 16th birthday because uh, it was in May, early May of, of 2005. So he was 15 going on 16. He was playing with Andrew McCarter, who was a strong, well-built Scot, and a and, and the Walker Cup captain, uh, Nigel Edwards. And hmm. this little slip of a thing, if you pardon the expression, <laughs> hit it 20 yards past Nigel Edwards and was only 15 yards behind the very strong player that Andrew McCarter was. But it was the actual movement. I was, I was on the, I have to get this right exactly, because I, I hate not being exactly right, the ninth. <laughs> in uh, Carton House, me and three players, and that was it. And that was the first time I saw Rory McIlroy. And when I saw his movement, the gracefulness of, of how he delivered the, cl- the club through top of the backswing, through the ball, and with the power, it was the click he made on the ball that made, made my ears go, wow. Because you, he only had a certain amount of musculature to generate the amount of power he needed to move the ball out there and the talent level to do that, and the beauty of the swing. And there are some moments in, in your golf sort of coverage career that you really remember forever. And that was one I remembered forever, I think, uh, for a reason. Even if he didn't go on to do what he was doing, because there was, he was destined to do something extraordinarily special. What he's done yes. has been, But it, I would have remembered it, even if he had become a tour player who wasn't who he is right now, because it was a burgeoning talent. And it's so wonderful when you hear about somebody's talent and then you see it firsthand and say, oh, my goodness, what have I just witnessed? And what I have just witnessed beginning of something extraordinary. Well, I mean, it was. And what I can tell you uh, about it is that I was very, very fortunate um, in that his father, Jerry, was the barman of the sports club uh, that I was associated with. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a more affable guy you never meet. I mean, really charming chap, hardworking. And, you know, all of a sudden, um, we, we sort of 
you know, this young Rory had been on TV and, you know, a chat show and it's pretty well shown where he's chipping balls into a washing machine. Uh, and, you know, there was a little bit of chat about it. And um, uh, my first uh, job in golf was at Clandy Boy Golf Club. Um, and I came back from England, from, from London. And, uh, you know, I was happy to take up, delighted to take up a position as general manager uh, 26 years ago. Um, and uh, Jerry uh, had an association uh, with Clandy Boy. And he was Hollywood Golf Club, of course. But uh, Jerry went to, and worked at Clandy Boy uh, as uh, in charge of sort of front of house. And that was a little bit after my time. But, um, you know, he, he brought Rory uh, at 10 years of age uh, to play Clandy Boy. And I just, I kind of dandered out. Uh, and uh, I can remember this, you know, small lad. And, and his father made sure he took his cap off and shook hands. Uh, and I sort of casually said, um, so how did he go, Jerry? And he said, well, he shot 72, which was par, uh, which almost seemed just ridiculous. Uh, but if we forward on then, obviously there were people close to Rory uh, and Jerry in particular that I knew. And, uh, you know, you would, he was beginning to, 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 to win a number of sort of tournaments out in the States as well, you know, kind of under... 12s or whatever in Orlando and uh, you could see that, 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 that this was really gathering pace um, and I, I'd moved on um, through Hilton and I got a call uh, by a chap called Jim Tracy uh, to uh, go up and help out uh, this Lockern project um, and you know uh, I'd been to Enniskillen once uh, I played cricket uh, at Enniskillen, I uh, got food poisoning, I can remember, but I still I, I scored 75 runs, so it wasn't all bad. Uh, and I thought, well, let's go up and have a look at this particular particular site uh, at Lockern, which which is pretty spectacular and Loch Lomond-esque, ironically. Um, and uh, but Jim had big ideas, and uh, you know the the economy was still booming, 2005, 2006. Uh, and he said, I want to engage with Faldo, uh, and Faldo's a course designer. Uh, I know he, he also was looking at the Maguire girls, uh, Leona and Lisa, uh, and he said, what do you think? And I, and I said, well, there's a guy called Rory McElroy. Jim, I think that you should, he was 15, I think you should look at him. And he said, well, you know, he didn't know much about him, um, and uh, I, I kind of drove down his two-and-a-half-hour drive. Um, I, I contacted Jerry. I said, jump in the car with Rory. And uh, let's go up and meet uh, Jim Tracy. Uh, and um, so that's what we did. And Rory had just shot 61 at Royal Portrush. Uh, and, and I said uh, to Rory, as he sort of lying prostrate in the back seat, um, you know, what, what, uh, what did you think when you walked off the 18th? And he sat up and he looked at me and he said, I should have buried the first. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so all of a sudden, and then there was an association with Lockern uh, for a while, uh, and and that's another story for another time. But uh, you know, so I, I kind of totally knew where you're coming from. I was very fortunate, like you, to see you know it was an incredible talent, um, and I guess nobody knew he would go on quite to do what he's done. But I don't think any of us were surprised either, Greg. No, and 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 that day that I saw him, he shot sixty-seven. Uh, on a par seven, set up over 7,000 yards in, in the soft, underfoot conditions in May. And two months later, he shot that 61 that you referred to at the age of just 16 in Royal Portrush. So, you know, yeah. it's, uh, I suppose what we see now is to be that way. Yeah, it, it seemed to be the case. So I guess we, we sort of fast forward then into you know what's going on in, in golf at the moment. Um, I'll get your opinions on the Masters and who you think the kind of runners and riders are for that. I mean, but there's a fascinating sub-story, as there has been now for 18 months, which is to do with Liv. Uh, and everybody's going to be, I would say, is going to be very interested to see how the Liv players uh, actually play at the Masters. Um, and, you know, I've just I've noticed that in Orlando, they've paired the six Masters champions together. So you've got Mickelson, Bubba and Sergio, and then you've got Swartzel, DJ, and Patrick Reed. So they've sort of grouped them together, uh, which, you know, uh, is maybe one of those things, but there's always uh, conspiracy theories or subplots. So first and foremost, what's your view on Liv, uh, Greg? Will it survive? Has it surprised you, or has it disappointed you? Well, Liv has been a, it's been a really good thing for golf. Um, I think we see 
the PGA Tour probably affecting more changes in the space of one year, even less than a year, mm -hmm. than perhaps would have envisaged in 10 years. And so it's been a catalyst for change. Uh, look, the human rights side of it is, is something which personally I would have a huge difficulty with in terms of two billion uh, coming from uh, you know, the, the, the PIF um, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Ireland has 800 million euros worth of trade with Saudi Arabia. So there's, that's the other side of the story. So you can have one perspective on live with regard to the, the human rights and the Saudi Arabia source of the money. But Saudi Arabia has so many contacts in, in the world of business and uh, is a generator of uh, a lot of, uh, in, in, in second and third stage scenarios, money on the PGA Tour as well, because you, you can't ignore that. So it's it, that's one thing which I think a lot of people uh, are still aware of uh, with regard to the actual um, implementation of the live program and the, the live schedule last year. They felt it was it was very successful, but I wonder was it successful because it was such a notorious type of story, um, mm. and that the old scenario that all publicity is good publicity. Uh, so it had a very high profile last year. But that profile seems to be receding somewhat. And the events are being staged on CWL, I think the channel is, in, in, in yeah. America. Not a mainstream channel. Uh, and, you know, their, their viewership figures seem to be quite modest. Uh, and eventually, you wonder to what degree will the, the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia sustain the amount of commitment that they have towards it. Uh, we've already heard that the the party jets between tournaments are no longer um, the the element of, of being very, very uh, over the top with the spending may well come to a point where they have to start seeing the bottom line and seeing that it's a sustainable business model. But that's for the business people to in the uh, whether they can sustain two billion of uh, an outlet and not get any return for how many years. The real issue is what's happening to the golfers who go there. Um, we haven't seen that much of Cam Smith playing brilliantly, uh, Dustin Johnson to some degree, uh, the other stars who have gone there. It's all gone a bit quiet. Um, and I think we'll find out at the Masters uh, if those players have retained the level of competitiveness that we have seen when they were PGA Tour players. And I'm thinking really only of one person here, and that's Cameron Smith. Cameron Smith is the one, you know, get that live you know achieved last year who was a real blow to the pga tour to the world of golf because he was arguably the best player in the world when he went to live um and a player going up rather than a player's on the downward spiral or cycle in his career not saying that joaquin neiman is not on the upward cycle of his career and he was a i think 19th in the world when they signed him but he's not the level of name that cameron smith was um, so I think how this year progresses and how the chatter about live begins to recede because all of the very controversial stuff has been gone through. I think that is now going to be the hard part is maintaining a profile last year. A lot of their profile was down to Greg Norman, uh, and his arguments with Rory McIlroy in whether it's in social media, whether it's Norman arguing with Jay Monaghan. All of those arguments have sort of dissipated somewhat in their intensity. And now they're just going to have to self-generate their own publicity. And what happens if it just recedes into the back of a lot of people's minds and it doesn't become a successful, you know, uh, business model that makes money and just keeps sucking money out of the public investment fund? How long will that be sustainable? So that's just a long and rambling way of, of saying that I'm, I'm really aware that this year, uh, live have to find something uh, that generates another wave of interest in it. Yeah, we, we actually, for this podcast, of which my thanks go to IMG for sort of allowing uh, this to happen as well, um, is we have two uh, potentially live connected uh, people coming onto the podcast at, at different times and independently. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be one's a player um, and uh, the other one's uh, pretty well associated with it. Uh, and hopefully that does run through because I, I think it would be interesting uh, just to, to get their take uh, on, on, what's, on how they view it. Um, I'm sure they'll, they'll take it and view it positively. But uh, as you pointed out, I thought it was strange as well, Greg, that 
uh, it was sort of leaked out that live players would owe two to four times their contract if they broke it. Now, that, that kind of has been floated out there. I don't know if the timing's strange or, or what, because there's obviously uh, some chat about maybe a player or two going back to the PGA from Liv. Um, I, have you any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there is, there is a sense that the first player who even motions to see what it's like to exit their contract with Liv, whatever they face with regard to their contract with Liv, that would be possibly the beginning of a domino effect um, uh, of negativity. Because Liv, as you know, they very strong at what they are. Liv supporters on social media who keep uh, pummeling out, propping out propaganda type of stuff in, uh, in terms of positivity with regard to Liv. When that mood changes um, and say the first player who is a live player, not saying it's going to happen, but if it did happen and we hear that it might happen, um, that would uh, that would be very serious for live. If uh, if the model is not seen to be the all singing and all dancing, wonderful thing that they said it was going to be. And uh, say a prominent player says, I, I don't really see the rest of my career as a live player. I'd like to get back to the PGA Tour. And then the PGA Tour have to decide how they treat a player who's gone to live and tries to come back, how they decide whether there's going to be a sanction, whether there's going to be a, a period of sitting out. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, uh, that's something which we'll have to wait and see if someone actually does motion in the direction of... Uh, exiting uh, exiting live and it, and it may not happen you know they may all see their contracts and realize that well it's not uh, the funnest place to be as i thought it might be but those eight figures in my bank account are, are a compelling reason day uh so that that has that all has to pan out and um before i think we see someone exiting but you know if it's a really 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 prominent player who even casts doubt on live publicly um then that's a huge setback for Liv. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what a subplot, eh? I mean, it's um, <clears throat> great stuff for journalists, I guess. Uh, you know, the amount of stories and, and uh, everything that's sort of coming out of of both tours, if you want to put it like that, and include the European DP World Tour uh, as well. Um, probably less significant, but still, uh, you know, a player in it. Um, but now we move on to the Masters, and now this Masters is really highly anticipated. It always is. It's everybody looks forward to it. But now you've got will a live player win it? Uh, will they miss the cut? Um, and or what is their performance going to be? And actually with all the players together, which is what the public want and what golf spectators want to see. It's the best in the world competing against each other. Who actually has got a good chance to win this, uh, Greg? You're going to be there. So what, what's your thoughts? Um, yeah, like, look at look at the top two last year, uh, you know, Scotty Scheffler and Rory McIlroy, you know. So like, that tells you a great deal of how, you know, the old cliche of cream rising to the top. Although Shane Lowry had a great chance and he would have been mm -hmm. in out just outside the world's top 20 when when he made his run but he I think he took a seven a six or yeah. a seven fourth hole in the final round uh, and shane then you know came back to finish third uh so there's i'm um, look look augusta has as a lot of very uh more notable commentators in the sport than me have said it actually probably is the easiest of the majors to win because it's got the smallest field of uh really top competitors if you Look at the field of the Masters. It tends to be in the territory of 90 players. Uh, hmm. Rule out 20 of those for, for reasons of inexperience, of age in, in, some regard, in some regard, because there are a lot of past, a few past champions who are no longer as sharp as they might have once been. Uh, and then a few amateurs uh, who probably aren't going to be uh, in the shake-up come soon. So you're down to maybe 60 to 70 players who can win. Compare that to the US Open, where there's probably 100, 120 players who can win, or the Open, similarly, or the USPGA. So in that regard, um, and then you've got the course and distance performers, those who really, really, really like Augusta. And then you've got the other factor of, you know, it's such a big thing to win the Masters, and it's the first major of the year with seven months of, of anticipation. Sorry, more than seven months of anticipation. It's nine months now of anticipation since the last major. Uh, and it's almost too big for some people. Um, so you're, you're whittling away 
And I think you're whittling away down to the point of where the best players in the world are. Right? So I'm, th- I'm looking at a world's top 10. No, when we, someone like Clark uh, in the world at the moment. Certainly a world's top 20 player. Uh, but I think one of the fascinating things about golf right now is so many players in that top 20 are top-ranked players. Like Justin Thomas is outside of the top 10 of the world rankings at the moment. Mm. Um, and, we, and you've got burgeoning talents. You know, obviously Sam Burns is mm. into the top 10 of the world. Max Homa is into the top 10 of the world. Um, like Patrick Cantley, like is up to number four in the world. Like these are all players. Like Cantley, the year the Tiger won, had a, had a real chance of winning. And uh, I think he was either leading or joint leading with only a few holes to play. He was a bit ahead of Tiger on the in the in the T sheet uh, on the final. So, like, and obviously, look at the top three in the world, Scotty Scheffler, Rory McIlroy, John Ram. Basically, what I'm saying, Bill, is I'm mm. just sitting on, I've got more splinters on my backside. I can't, I can't come off. I can't really think about failing uh, mm. my, my colors to a mass. And I'll tell you one of the reasons for that. It's a four letter word beginning with or, who I so want to just, you know, hope gets across the line. And if a five letter word beginning with S and Shane or Seamus, a six letter word beginning with S <laughs> competing. Um, and we also have a very fine amateur Matt McLean involved. Look, I, I'm obviously very, very uh, aware that while Ireland has won 10 golf majors since 2007, the Masters is the one that Irish players haven't won. So I tend to show my colours a little bit in that regard. So I'm obviously, you know, I'd love Rory McIlroy, not just to break the eight or nine season duck in terms of the majors. 2014 is that time he had a major winning season. But that sixth person to have the career Grand Slam would be immortal for Rory. So I'm afraid to say who I think might win other than Rory. And if I say I think Rory's going to win, then he definitely won't win because all my predictions are wrong. <laughs> well, so say all of us. I mean, I think that I'm totally rooting for Rory as well. Love to sh- see Shane uh, up there. And, you know, I was there. I'm sure you were as well, Greg, at, uh, at Port Rush, Royal Port Rush. I mean, what an occasion that was. My God, that will live long in the memory. Uh, you know, so Shane, uh, he, you know, he, I think he quite likes Augusta, doesn't he? I mean, he, it's, it's, a, it's a course that suits Shane Laurie. Oh yeah, like I, I think last year Shane uh, was very interesting in the preview days. I, I spoke to him, and I, I never really saw the intent that he had at Augusta before. I think he felt that he had served his apprenticeship in his four or five visits to Augusta or last year, and that he was now ready to be a contender. And he kind of expressed that before. And he was a contender. And he, he, if it wasn't for that fourth hole, mind you know, it's every player has a bad hole and they can always say if it wasn't for this, if it wasn't for that. Shane had the arm in terms of knowing that he's a major champion to contend on Sunday. And it's, it's funny, I, when he finished, uh, and he finished third, um, during the tied third, I thought he'd be ecstatic. He wasn't. He really felt it was, this was one that got away. And I think that's an expression of how much he knows that Augusta is a golf course that fits his eye. Uh, we know that Rory, Augusta fits his eye on occasion, shoot 64 in the final round last year. But we also know that Rory has, has the capacity to shoot a mid-70s round, sometimes early in, in, in the Masters. So he has to avoid the slow start. I got off to a slow start last year as well before finishing. Mm-hmm. So um, absolutely, they're both serious contenders. Yeah, agreed. Agreed, Greg. We just keep our fingers crossed uh, with with regards to that. Now, you, you covered talking about Irish golfers. Um, uh, you you covered a story, a nice story about uh, a golfer called David Carey, who, whose caddy is his girlfriend, Caitlin. Um, and uh, we have a bit of a thing about caddies. I have a caddy that will come on the podcast, but you know you've got Rory with his best friend Harry. Uh, we had uh, Katrina Matthew, whose husband uh, caddied for her, and we had a bit of a laugh and, and you know about you know how does that affect their home life? Uh, and now we have a, a David Carey story. Uh, as I say, his girlfriend is his caddy, of course, Lee Westwood, uh, another one um, who, who had the girlfriend who I think is now his wife, uh, caddying for him. So uh, the David Carey story, I think people would really like to hear about this, Greg. Yeah, David Carey is a very interesting uh, young man. He actually hasn't had a proper, say, challenge card yet. He's been operating on the third tier Alps tour 
in which famously a few years ago he shot a round of 57. Um, and I think that says all, it doesn't matter what the golf course is, even if it's 6,400 yards or 6,800 yards or whatever. The fact that he, he only had a chance to break 60 on a golf course and then didn't just break 60, went lower and deeper considerably to 57 and had the mind and the nerve to finish that out. Uh, I think it says a great deal about the character. And he is an interesting character. He, he's, he's certainly not your average player. He's a huge amount of self-belief. Um, he, he really does. He's in his late 20s. He knows that he's got a talent for the game. He's probably frustrated that he hasn't got himself onto the Challenge Tour. But uh, part, of, part of his ambition uh, led him to qualify for the Open last year. And he played all four rounds. And, and in three hmm. of them, he the final day, it, it, as good as he'd like to the first three days but he he was really you know someone who felt he belonged and so he has that little bit of an x factor he doesn't seem to be too daunted by the very big uh notion of playing in a pga tour event now his first round wasn't very good yesterday he was i think he was nine over par both and then he finishes his round three under past 10 that could have spiraled into a round in the mid to high 80s the way he was going early on but he had the wherewithal to realize that his game is good enough to be better than it was over the first eight holes. And uh, he came back and made four birdies in the last 10 holes to shoot around a 78, which means that he's not, the, he's not last in the field by a long way. And obviously, it was a very difficult experience for him. But I think it shows you something about his mind that even on a stage as big as a PGA Tour event, having gone through the two rounds, uh, two qualifying uh, events of Monday qualifying, Obviously, he was a bit nervous, possibly, but calmed those nerves enough to, to come in with a, you know, four birdies in the last 10 holes on a PGA Tour course. He is an interesting, strong-minded, uh, Ben Hogan disciple type of uh, old-fashioned uh, player in, in some ways. Uh, and he hits the ball an absolute mile. He's a, a real crusher of the golf ball. So, yeah, I, I wish him well. Uh, and I hope this is a catalyst for something that uh, I mean, moves yeah, him on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's what you know. There's hopefully there's a range of podcasts is we we talk about you know some people you may not hear about you know we, we get sucked into talking about the usual uh, suspects, but um, it's it's good when we when we pick out uh, the odd uh, potential star. And of course, Calvin Pete came late into the game. Uh, he passed away sadly uh, a couple of years ago, and um, you know David Carey could make uh, an an impression, and and I hope he does. And uh, I think it's interesting to get a bit of an insight into this character as well greg um another another girl that is on the other side of the spectrum so a young girl who's playing at augusta the national women's amateur at the moment uh, and i think it's really interesting that augusta have a number of tournaments leading up to um the masters uh, and this is a, a young lady called rose shang and i think that there's probably no doubt that uh, this is a potential superstar um, she's 13 under through two rounds. Uh, 66 was the lowest score ever. Uh, and then she beat it the next day with a 65. Nine under for the par fives alone. Um, would you subscribe to the fact, Greg, that, that this young lady is going to be a, a superstar? I think so. She's uh, kind of following in the footsteps of probably the last phenomenon. I mean, Leona Maguire was world number one for, what, um, 135 weeks um but before leona lydia ko was just level of talent as well and i think we're looking at a player of that order because she is the world number one she's been there's been a lot of noise around uh, rose Zhang and how good she is for a good year um and she obviously is showing that she's almost lapping the field uh, and when you get one who comes through like that uh, another superstar in the lpga uh, and maybe they you know maybe the lpga needs a, a new superstar to come through they do have a very you know strong roster of of players uh at that level uh, and lydia ko uh, bouncing back after a, a little bit of a lull in her career into that territory of being possibly the world's best player right now um but it would be nice to see a new a new face and rojang looks like that uh, face right now yeah and, and as the ladies tour we, we've covered it a fair bit in the, in the first podcast uh you, you know is, is there i mean leona mcguire um you know, I, I think she's capable of winning a major. Um, I, I've always felt that, uh, you know, she, she's a, a great uber talent. She showed it in the Solheim Cup in Burness, Ohio. What's your thoughts on Leona? 
Yeah, Leona's, um, I think she's always been a player who made graduated steps through her career. And and it's no different since she's turned professional. Um, and, and you can voice that in a, in, in a perspective in that her first year stepping out of amateur golf, in which she was far and away the biggest star for the previous previous three years uh, with that you know domination of the number one spot in the world rankings for basically two and a half of the previous three years um steps into the pro game and she actually doesn't get her full card the first season so she has to go to the metro tour the second string tour and she thinks she won twice on that and she got her, her main lpga card and it's all been graduated steps all, all along the way and obviously the victory last year uh, just I think it was 13 months ago in the drive-on championship in Florida, first Irish player to win, uh, our first Irish female professional player to win on any major tour. We had a winner on the, the ladies' European tour either. Uh, Maureen Medill, I think, was second twice about 30 years ago. And uh, Leona winning on the LPGA tour, you know, took her into that territory of, yes, perhaps there's a chance of a major golf championship in her. She actually had a bit of a chance uh, at the in Muirfield uh, last uh, August in the AIG Women's Open. Um, she came with a fantastic final round, 65. And there were a couple of putts on, the, I think, the 14th and 15th greens inside 10 feet. If they'd gone mm. down, would have set the target. And it would have been a hard target to reach on what was a blustery final day. Um, and so she actually did have a chance of winning. And she, she referenced the fact that if one of those putts had dropped, it might have just given her the impetus to shoot a 63 or something like that, which would have set the target that would have been hard. Uh, for uh, the eventual winner, Ashley Buhai, to, uh, to, to have eclipsed. So she has had that feeling of being in the heat of contention in a major already. And like she only turned pro in 2018. So like, this is very, very early on in her career. And she has a strong, gritty consistency to her, her nature and to her golf that, you know, references to me something more like a Bernhard Langer type of player, um, even a Nick Faldo type of player. She just has a tremendous you know, granite uh, interior when, when the pressure comes on. And I think she's also obviously got the talent. She's a great putter. And she seems to have added a few yards. I see her, her, her driving average in the territory of 260 right now. And that's all she needs to do is to get her driving average up to, into the middle spectrum uh, of the LPGA. And, uh, you know, and, and I think then she's going to have a chance in a major, especially in a, in a women's open, because I think on Lynx courses, uh, she's very, very, very much happier. Not much happier, but very, very happy on a Lynx course because uh, it's in her DNA, like so many Irish players. Yeah, yeah, I know, absolutely. So a uh, uh, big couple of years, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, she's just she just seems to be going the the right way. And uh, you know, we, we we just ha- we've had the uh, recently the match play, the world match play. My God, I mean, what a tournament that was! It was it was. Formula One stuff at times, uh, particularly those semis and uh, you know and, and, and everything that, that sort of played out. And then the announcement is that uh, well, it's at this moment in time to be no more. Uh, the world match play is is going to come off the this the road of the schedule, and everybody's looking at each other, going, "What, uh, Greg? What's your understanding there? Is it has it gone, or is it you know are they reconsidering?" Well. My understanding is that it's uh, at the moment it's gone for next year, um, but I think that oh. if ever there was to be a, a fairly epic world match play, it was the right year to have it. With this talk of the world match play being lost from the rotation of tournaments for forever, because it was a great five days. First four days, actually, the funny thing about match play is that the final day off television can be a disappointment. Because there, are, there's only two matches on the course, uh, and in the morning, in the in the semi-finals, and obviously in the third and fourth place playoff, and in the final, in the evening session or the afternoon session, which means that if they aren't thrilling matches, uh, the, the cameras don't have an awful lot of places to go. Whereas in a stroke play final day Sunday, you could have eight players in contention for all you know, uh, and thereby you know the televisual aspect of match play can by the time the fields are narrowed down to the semifinals and final, be pretty hard televisual experiences. Uh, but the first four days, um, the group stages and then the, the knockout phase, it was terrific. Absolutely, you know, gripping uh, television and more than just sport and golf. I just thought that there was drama that match play shows in Ryder Cup, as we know, in Solheim Cup and President's Cup, match play has this special capacity the hand-on-hand combat 
stop it. The idea that that could be lost uh, to the schedule forever, uh, the best thing about this uh, epic match play, world match play, was that it happened this year when they're talking about getting rid of it. And I think that particularly strong edition of the world match play will make them think twice about it. But the way things uh, I, I, I heard or, or, or read was that there was a contractual um, dispute of sorts between the Austin Country Club and the PGA Tour. Um, you know, the amount of money that the Austin Country Club have to pay for staging and having their club uh, stage the world match play was was increased and um, then there became a, uh, a business scenario where this fell down through the cracks. And if that's the reason it's gone, then surely the sporting reasons, uh, which we've seen in the, in the recent world match play, are far more important. Yeah, I mean, it's hope, yeah. Hope it, after next year, but it looks like it's gone next year. Gosh, uh, rich history as well with, um, as we'll remember the Wentworth uh, years, um, which which were spectacular and will live long in the memory uh, as well. Uh, you, you were at the, the Ryder Cup in Whistling Straits, um, Greg. Uh, the next one's in Rome. Um, obviously, nobody knows who's going to be in the team, who's going to be allowed to play. Um, but... You know, I, 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 your thoughts on the Ryder Cup in Rome, uh, Whistling Straits was a real, that was a toughie for the Europeans. Um, so what's your thoughts about Rome looking ahead? Yeah, this is a very important Ryder Cup, uh, not just, not for Europe necessarily to win, but I think it's very important that this Ryder Cup is a very tight one. Because in actual fact, you have to go back to 2012 for the last really, really tight Ryder Cup. Uh, 2014, Paul McGinley's European team, they won it pretty well. Uh, it was almost in the can halfway through Sunday singles. Uh, 2016, America had the same sort of a scenario in Hazeltine. 2018 in Paris, you know, Europe had a good lead and it dominated on Sunday. Uh, and obviously in uh, Whistling Straits, the Americans just dominated from the start. So I actually think what used to be the thing we used to always talk about the Ryder Cup was, you know, comes down to the final putt on Sunday, be it Bernhard Langer in Kiwa Island in 1991 or the extraordinary miracle at Medina in, uh, in, in 2012. But I think this Ryder Cup just needs to be a really tight one. Going down to the last couple of singles keeps us on the edge of our seats because one of the things about the Ryder Cup is as soon as a first match is on, the first ball is struck into play, you think that every single birdie putt that doesn't drop is going to be the moment that the, you know, the tilt of the momentum goes the other way. And oh my gosh. And, and I love the fact that the Ryder Cup is nail biting from the very first ball struck on Friday morning. And what I'd like to see is one of those Ryder Cups which goes all the way from that first ball struck to that last putt, you know, sunk on Sunday. And, and so I don't, we haven't had one for nearly a decade, a really nail biting Ryder Cup. That's right. I know I'm in the K Club, but I still etched my memory is Tiger launching it into the into the lake and uh, off off the hitman iron off the first tee, and uh, it was almost like oh my god, you know, and that and it can happen to the, the best of them. Um, so yeah, we need a close one, absolutely. Now while you're at Whiston Straits. Uh, your your buddy, um, uh, a friend, I, I think in vertical commas or maybe not, uh, Ewan Murray uh, was on the podcast and Ewan uh, gave a great interview like yourself, Greg, and, and an insight as well for us that you know are slightly outside the ropes. Um, and he said that th there was a story about a bus coming back um, from uh, Whiston Straits and uh, he said that you would tell the story and he said he would be very interested in how you told that story. Well, you know, they are long days, you know, and sometimes you, 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 know, you have to have a, a spot of relaxation. And the, the, the journey back from Whistling Straits to, uh, to Milwaukee was, what, uh, oh, an hour and a quarter on the bus. And a couple of cans of beer were brought on the bus. A couple of cans of beer were drunk. And, and then there was the requirement for, uh, um, you know, a pit stop, so to speak. And uh, so, yeah, Ewan called the pit stop. And uh, the bus driver pulled over and <laughs> was done and got back on the bus and the bus wouldn't start. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, uh, so we're in the middle of the, uh, an island in the, of, a, of a freeway uh, of some description. Uh, we had to call for a second bus to arrive. And, uh, and Ewan was there 
as though he had done nothing on tour whatsoever. With the tour journalists who spent 16 hours in the press room dying to get home for their five hours of possible shut eye. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, no better man to to, to praise. <laughs> no, no better man indeed. And and can you believe? Uh... Greg, it's 40 years to the day uh, where Bernard Langer in the Benson Hedges played that shot out of the tree. If, yeah. I mean, I was watching footage. It was frightening. I mean, I don't think the health and safety executive would would maybe allow it these days. But really, if, if you need to see it, uh, and if, you know, people listening to this podcast, you need to try and get that footage because him getting down from that tree uh was really precarious <laughs> and i mean i i was thinking my god you know he could have killed himself and um, do you do you remember that greg yeah i remember watching it on television all right yeah uh, but then again he was in his early 20s <laughs> <You know? Yes. laughs> it's a real burn to do uh you know there he is now mid 60s and he's still firing on an awful lot of of the positive cylinders and uh, a, a relatively recent winner in the champions tour and you know, he's the type of character who says, if that's possible to do, I'm just going to do it. So mm. he saw the ability of getting up into that tree and being the shot, and he did. Uh, the getting down bit seemed harder than the getting up bit, but mm. that was a reflection of, of what we have seen of Bernard, Bernard Langer. Uh, if there's an obstacle to be uh, uh, got around, if he can find in his mind a way to get around it, and in this occasion it was climbing a tree to play a putt or to play a shot, um, this is a guy who's overcome what four different editions of the Ips, you know, yeah. these roadblocks, and he finds ways around it, and uh, and he might be one of the better putters in the Champions Tour right now, um, and you know that's just his mind, you know, and I don't think there would be too many other people in the in the world of golf who would have taken that on, but he's very athletic. He was a very athletic young man. He is a very athletic man in his 60s right now. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he did the same thing again, if there was a ball up the... Yeah, I think we'd need to get a trampoline underneath him. But uh, Greg, listen, let's come to the end of the podcast. Absolutely terrific. I mean, just an hour has has flown by. Uh, as always, you're great company. Haven't seen you for a while, uh, but uh, I know that that won't be the case too much longer. Enjoy the Masters. Greg will be listening and watching your your, your, your reports and, and Twitter feeds as well. And uh, on behalf of you from the Loch, uh, thank you so, so much for being involved. Oh, no, Bill, it's my pleasure. And, I, and I'm not just saying that. I'm absolutely delighted to be on, on your podcast and uh, hope to see you soon. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Cheers.